the Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, who published the iconic Pictorial Guide to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing in both the UK and around the world. Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places by Julian Hoffman is part love letter to the hauntingly beautiful landscapes under threat and part reminder of the vital connections between humans and nature and all that we stand to lose in terms of wonder and well-being if we destroy them. From the marshlands of Kent to the Coral Triangle of Indonesia, Julian guides us on a journey introducing us to the people who are fighting so passionately to preserve fragile and unique ecosystems under threat from human intervention. Julian, it's a huge pleasure to have you on Planet Pod. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you ever so much. It's a real honour to be on the podcast today. Uh, Irreplaceable has been shortlisted, as I said, under the new category of writing on global conservation, and it covers a huge range of places and wildlife. So I wondered if I could start by asking you, how did the book come about? What spurred you to write it? Yes, there was there was a single place that sparked the entire journey, and it was a journey that spanned about six years, if I'm honest with you. Um, back in the 2013, I was intending to write a completely different book to this one that had no relationship whatsoever. And I had booked a week in London where I'd scheduled various um, interviews and some research time. And whilst there, I received a message uh, from a woman on Twitter who asked me if I would be interested in seeing a place that was completely imperiled. And that place is called the Hoo Peninsula in North Kent on the southern edge of the Thames Estuary. I didn't really know of the Hoo Peninsula, couldn't have really told you where it was, though it turns out it's only about 30 miles as the egret flies from central London. And as coincidence, synchronicity, call it what you will, had it, I happened to have a single spare day in my week's busy schedule. And I thought perhaps I'll, I'll pop down there on the train and I might be able to find enough material to write a short blog post or perhaps a newspaper article that kind of explored or detailed the, the, the plight that this um, place was, was facing. And the threat that it was under was a proposal to build Europe's largest airport on top of it, a plan that was heavily backed by London's then mayor and of course now prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson. And that day, and I say this with no exaggeration, completely changed the course of my life because I met three residents of the Hoo Peninsula in Kent, ordinary people, they would repeatedly describe themselves to me as, um, who were doing absolutely everything they possibly could to defend and protect this extraordinary marshland landscape. And it's for both its human and its wild communities. 
And that day in their company, and it was an early April day with these kind of brittle winds and, and, and scouring snows coming out of the north, I listened to these warm and passionate voices that enabled me for the perhaps the very first time in my life to understand what loss meant. None of these three people were professional environmentalists or typical uh, conservation campaigners. They weren't ecologists, but they understood precisely what loss meant, um, both for them and the, the, the wildlife that surrounded them on the, on the peninsula. Because I think what all too often happens, certainly for myself, is that we, we tend to look at loss in the natural world through a kind of mathematical or statistical perspective. So we're told of how many breeding birds we lost in a given year or over a period of time, how many hundreds of acres of woodland or marsh or meadow are due to be destroyed for a particular development. But that day, as I watched these extraordinary skeins of geese smudge the, the, the Thames in the distance uh, and curlews flying over and marsh harriers trembling through these kind of bands of weather, I began to understand for, for the first time really what loss means in a very visceral and relatable and real way, what it meant for both them and those communities and what it meant for three entire villages that would be destroyed alongside the 13th century churches that would have been completely obliterated if the plan went ahead. And I took the train back to St. Pancras in London late in the afternoon, and I realized that the book that I'd been intending to write was going to get put up on a shelf because there was another book that I felt needed to be written, and that was irreplaceable. It was really about the threats to, to places of enormous importance to us, for both, both for ourselves and for the natural world. That's a wonderful story, and I think that just sums up for so many of us how passionately we feel about our local places, but how often we feel unable to share our voices. So the fact that you could go and meet meet these um, these people in Kent, and you know, as it's up the road for me, I live in Kent. Oh, is so that vest, right? Vested interest, but I, you know, it's something that that happens all the time. Communities care so much about their spaces and their wild places and very often they're not as um, dramatic as that they're not as um, yes. high profile um, but that doesn't mean they're any less cared for so I think it's yeah. wonderful that that triggered this this fabulous book and, and triggered you on a journey um, to, to, to go out and how did you find the other places to write about I mean this feels like this was as you say this was just a lucky stroke of fortune but but where do you go to, to seek out the other places you des describe in the book? Well, I think what, what had happened is that I'd simply tuned into what I'd been perhaps subconsciously always aware of, that most weeks uh, when I leaf through a newspaper or scroll through my Twitter feed, I learned that there's some place that's threatened. And the, the kind of uh, the format is always the same. Save such and such meadow, save such and such wood, save such and such allotment. And those places had those campaigns, I should say, in, on behalf of those places, had just passed me by. They weren't in my part of the world. And so they were, I felt sorry for them, but I hadn't really caught on to what they meant. But it, by spending time with these three people on the Hoop Peninsula, suddenly it kind of telescoped into great focus for me the feelings that innumerable communities throughout the world, and this isn't, these aren't issues solely um, connected to the United Kingdom because they, they unfold across the planet. And suddenly I realized that there were people going through the exact same kind of battles 
even though the place itself might have been radically different. So I began effectively collecting all of these threatened places in a little sort of scrapbook and reading about their stories. And I began to contact people, asking if there was a, some way that I could perhaps uh, be introduced to them. And what that led me to really was to recognize in that to do a book justice about threatened places, it really had to be, first of all, global in perspective. But it also had to look at the widest possible range or spectrum of place and habitat. Because what I recognized very, very quickly is that the size of a place bears no relationship to its depth. It bears no relationship to the quality of experience and connection and attachment that humans have for those places or how important they are as dwelling grounds for wildlife communities. So the, a small allotment in the middle of uh, urban London, of course, can be absolutely vital for those communities that utilize them, both human and wild, as to the much more expansive uh, and open uh, landscape of the Hoop Peninsula, which is, as I say, just down the road, really, for London, uh, in terms of how important it is for those local communities that are able to engage uh, and live there. So that really began the search in, in terms of how I wanted to present these stories. And the, the final, I suppose, criteria was that I wanted to, I suppose, report back from these places in real time, as it were. So what that effectively meant was that I only wrote about places whose ultimate outcome in terms of a decision being made as to its threat um, hadn't been made by the time I first visited because I wanted to spend time with those people who lived there, who dwelled there, who were fighting to protect and preserve it, um, so that the story was, sorry, it was as real to me as it was to them as I was um, charting the kind of course of the trajectory of the narrative. Um, what that sadly meant, and I always try to mention this because you could pick up irreplaceable and recognize that quite a few of those stories were successful in the end. I had no idea what the outcome would be when I began the book. Mm. But because I'd placed this very specific idea of following them in real time, it meant that there were some places in the world that I didn't get to in time. They were destroyed before I could actually reach them. So I didn't write about those places. And those are places that exist now solely in memory. They're merely a name in people's, uh, you know, in people's tongues and in their memory banks. Um, and for the wild communities that, of course, dwelled there, they, they are also no longer part of this world. That's such a huge loss, isn't it? And I mean, it feels to me that the book is kind of part elegy and part call to action, really. And, and you know, it's extraordinary talking to you because just before we, we, we started the recording, you talked about your own experience and how you came to, to live where you do in, 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 in Greece. And I'm intrigued as to how your lived experience is incorporated in your writing because it feels that these two things are very real and um, and obviously you you write a lot and you, this isn't your first book but how important is that to you actually being able to reflect your own kind of lived experience and your worldview in in what you write and, and what you share with readers? Yes, I mean in this book especially it was it was absolutely critical that lived experience because what I what I recognised was that to to really write about not only the places and the wildlife, but the people, because people are very much at the heart of this, this book, um, alongside, you know, the places where they, they live, that it had to be premised on trying to explore in the greatest depth possible the extraordinary vibratory essence of these remarkable and often protected places that we find continually under threat. Um, 
And that meant spending a large amount of time with people. And that might mean quiet time, exciting time, sitting quietly with myself and watching what unfolds in a place, going back to places repeatedly wherever that was possible in order to try to kind of chart the, the, uh, the seasons and the changes, but also how people's own relationship with the place uh, develops over time. So in that sense, the lived experience was really vital because, of course, we, we talked earlier on about extinction. And the book, whilst also a call to action, is very much about loss in the natural world, but it's about extinction of wild species, it's about extinction of place, but it's also about extinction of experience, in a phrase by the American author Robert Michael Pyle, that kind of extraordinary tangible connective ability we have to attach ourselves to place, wherever in the world that might be, and which is also undermined and ultimately threatened whenever we destroy a place, we remove all that potential. Uh, from our own lives in, in, in the removal of the places from our surroundings. Because what extinction ultimately means, whether it's a species, place, or extinction, is a number. It literally renders something a number, and that number is zero. And so what I wanted to do was to animate the pages in the very best way I could with the extraordinary qualities of these places, people and wildlife that I was encountering. That meant a kind of deep journey into those places and into the lives of the people. And they, what was remarkable for me was the way people entrusted me with their stories. And they're often quite vulnerable stories and they're often quite heartbreaking at times, but they're also extraordinarily inspiring. And so I felt uh, a deep honor, I think, in that people were willing to share the meanings of these places. And those meanings often revolved around a combination of love and grief, the love for a place and the potential grief for a place that was under threat and that tomorrow, the day after, may no longer be part of this world. That's quite a burden to carry as a writer because you carry not just all of those feelings and those connectivities from those individuals and those communities, but you also, I guess, carry there's some sense of hope that you, by sharing their stories, you might be able to prevent what feels like the inevitable very often. Um, is there any part of the book that you feel sort of sums it up? Is there an extract that you could share with listeners that you feel might get to the heart of the matter? Um, and of course, as a result of this podcast, they are going to rush out and buy the book, which is essential. Mm -hmm. We need the, It's a beautiful book and you must purchase it. So Julian, can you share a short extract with us? Yes, I'd, I'd be delighted to. Uh, for this short extract, what we're going to do is we're going to travel uh, to Brighton Pier and it's late afternoon and it's winter. Eight starlings hustled overhead like a fan of thrown darts, roving the glimmering grey sea between piers. A minute later, and another twelve had joined them, followed by countless small additions and accretions over the next quarter of an hour, so numerous that I could no longer keep track of their source. It was as if they were simply materialising from within the growing assembly in an endless process of self-replication, or being sieved unseen from the sea. As if in response to the swirling birds, several hundred of them now fusing into a mass of rippling black belt, dark clouds billowed westwards, pressing the last of the winter light into a thin, shining seam between horizon and sky. And from that sliver of crushed sun, the rays flared outwards and over the sea, unwinding like a trawler's net and raining light on the wheeling birds. Murmuration is the word given to these grand assemblies of starlings, descended from the Latin murmur, meaning to surge, though a friend of mine said it sounded like a compendium of murmur and admiration, which seemed about right to me, 
and I suspect to the many others gathered that evening on the pier. Not merely the ones who'd arrived especially for this regular winter event, but for those unknowing visitors pulled in by the sheer, unexpected magic of it all. For the murmuration was difficult to ignore. It trembled off the coast as if the dancing images of a cinema reel were being projected onto the air itself. Over a thousand birds had now coalesced into a single aerial mass, each flickering and fainting of a life form mimicked by its neighbor. Whenever I tried to follow a single starling, to glimpse individuality amidst union, my eyes lost focus within seconds, tugged inside the dense, darkly incandescent pulse of the cauldron. Together, they shapeshifted into mystifying forms as evening fell around us. No sooner had a shape been perceived than it had already morphed into something radically unrelated, as if a sequence of ethereal phantoms, fugitive and fantastic in their unfolding, and few movements seemed beyond their reach. Mum, look at this side, cried a young boy, trampolining with joy on wooden boards. They're over here as well. And so we all followed him to the other side, as though the pier were in fact a tilting ship in a storm, its passengers sliding back and forth across the deck with the swell. The starlings were incoming now, their sky vessel moored for the night. The murmuration began to unravel and fray as evening gradually darkened, each buoyant weave falling towards the sea before being drawn down in long ribbons into the structure of the pier itself. And within seconds, the dreamscape of birds had vanished from air. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And I think just sums it up that preciousness of the natural world and how those things happen and then just disappear before our very eyes, which is really, I guess, at the heart of your book, isn't it? We have we have a once in a lifetime chance to save some of these places for future generations. That's right. I've been asking everyone this, and it's a kind of crazy question, really. But where where do you write? Do you write at home where you are? Do you write kind of? Do you have a special writing place? Do you disappear up to the top of your mountain and write? Or no, I, I write from our from our house here in the mountains in northern Greece, and I have a a nice big desk, but it's just in the corner of the bedroom. And you know, during the summer, the windows are open beside me, and in the winter, the the wood stove crackles away to my left. Um, so this is my more or less my working day space, and although sometimes I will work in the garden. But what I find, you know, such a challenge in many ways, you know, writing primarily about the natural world, is that kind of dichotomy between what the writer Barry Lopez called the theory and the practice. So out the window right now, there's fantastic and beautiful light on the walnut trees we have, and there's migrating flycatchers passing through them. It's really, really difficult sometimes to concentrate on writing about the natural world when the experience, that lived experience you, you, you talked about earlier is just on the other side of that window. And Barry Lopez talked about, he said that, you know, he would be up in his attic room where he works in Oregon and there's the theory of light when he's describing through memory and recollection what the possibilities of light might be. But then there's simply stepping outside and immersing yourself in light. And that's the practice of light. And it's a constant, it's a constant sort of challenge, I find. And I suspect most writers who write about the natural world find it an equal challenge. Because without going out there and filling the well, as my wife says, there's nothing to write about. But if we spent all our time beyond the window, we wouldn't write any books. So it's finding a balance. And about a month ago, we had a hoopoe, which is one of Europe's most extraordinary and beautiful birds. 
that blessed us by feeding in the garden for two consecutive afternoons. And I couldn't go outside because it would just frighten it up. But I pressed my face up against the mosquito netting. And I confess I got absolutely no writing done those two days because here was a hooper, you know, digging away, excavating our lawn in search of grubs. So the practice and the theory of the hoopoo, on that particular occasion, the practice and the hoopoo won out. Well, I think I would call that research. So that's okay. You can put, you can take that one down under the research box as long as the research, you know, that's gone in the notebook. It's long as the, yeah. um, as long yeah. as the, it translates from the notebook to the Absolutely. final page for the benefit of us, those of us who haven't seen a, a hoopoo. And I have to say, I have no idea what one looks like. So. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, look it up afterwards. It really is one of Europe's most extraordinary and spectacular birds. I'll get Jim Great onto it. Great flamboyant crest and this wonderful curved bill. Our wonderful producer Jim, yes, who is a, is, a, is, a, is a is a great is a great birdman, so he will know and no doubt um, no doubt point me on the right path. Um, Julian, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. I uh, thank you thank so you. much nice for making the time. Um, just as a kind of closing word, do you have a kind of call to action for for listeners to the podcast and hopefully readers of your book? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you, the world you've described me preserving, but is there anything specific you'd like us to do um, as a result of, of of listening to you and reading your work? I think the first and probably most fundamental thing is to recognize the powerful potential and potency we carry within us, each and every one. That's certainly one of the things that I took away from the many journeys that I made to write Irreplaceable, that people who were digging in in order to defend the irreplaceable, you know, defend some strong attachment and connection to the natural world. And I think that can vary from person to person. And although the environmental issues we face are kind of systemic in origin and the, the kind of response also has to be transformational in character and across our economic and our political and our agricultural um, uh, sort of industries, we, there's also this extraordinary place for individual action because individual action be, can, can be galvanizing and a, a real profound catalyst in many ways and for that might mean simply rewilding your garden it, that could mean letting your grasses and your dandelions grow long and that could be sowing native wildflowers or cutting a, a little hole in your suburban garden fence to enable hedgehogs to travel more through, freely through the landscape it could be inserting bat bricks and, and insect hotels in your lawn it could mean um, lobbying uh, politicians and voting for parties whose policies are sympathetic to the natural world. It could mean joining Extinction Rebellion in whatever capacity you feel is correct for you. It could mean uh, volunteering with uh, a wildlife organization. It could mean making consumer choices that reflect the complexity of the natural world and benefit it in some way. It could mean joining the climate strike marches that have been unfolding around the world over the course of the last year or so. When our hearts can't take it anymore, there is a profound range of responses that we can do to kind of correct uh, the damage that, that, that has taken place to the natural world over the course of centuries. Um, but I think the final thing I would like to touch upon, because individual action on its own isn't sufficient to stem the kind of great losses nor to stem the climate change uh, that we're, we're confronting as at uh, this very moment. And I think the, the most apt metaphor for myself at least, and it's what I both open and close irreplaceable with, is that startling murmuration that I read from, because that extraordinary weaving 
tapestry of a spectacle that unfolds across the evening skies in certain parts of Britain to this day, despite large losses of starling numbers. At the heart of each and every one of those is just a single starling. That's all a murmuration is. And it could be the starling that you pass on your way to work that's sitting on top of a bus stop in suburban London. It could be the starling that arrows low over a country park on a Sunday walk that you take. At the heart of each and every murmuration is just a single starling, but it's a starling that's in connection and union with countless other starlings. And that for me is what makes individual action so profoundly, at least on a potential level, galvanizing. Because when we work together, when we connect into uh, coalitions and campaigns, we strengthen both our resolve, but the potency of our demands and our, our love of the natural world. And I think it's through that, that those smaller actions that we take at an individual level grow into something profound in character and potentially very, very transformative overall. That's the most elegiac and wonderful call to action. And I Thank think you. that you've inspired us to feel that even though as individuals, our actions are small and perhaps not very brave, together we are far greater than, than the sum of our parts. So Absolutely. thank you. Thank you so much, Julian, for joining us. It's been such a thank joy. Thank you very much. Um, and um, you've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Irreplaceable, the fight to save our wild places is published by Penguin. And you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up on interviews with the other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.